1 Samuel 28 is where we're going to be at this morning. As we look at the text, we are picking up, not in verse 1, but in verse 3. Verse 1 and 2 were uh, connected to the last little section uh, about David fleeing to the Philistines and getting himself in a bit of trouble. Uh, as you know, he's kind of been on the run from Saul for quite some time, and he keeps having these altercations with him and keeps getting himself in these situations where he's confronting Saul and um, with the fact that he could have taken his life but does not, and then he's you know not really trusting the Lord and runs to the land of the Philistines for the second time, and he gets his own city there and starts you know taking out Israel's enemies there without letting the uh, Achish, the king of Gath, know that he's doing that, and so he's kind of just trying to keep it on the down low. And in the process, uh, Achish believes that David is just getting stronger and mightier and that he's just really, you know, ruining things in Israel and that everyone in Israel hates him. Uh, and so finally, as we come to uh, the beginning of 28, we see there that for a moment that Achish is like, look, now we're going to go out. The Philistines are going to go out and we're going to fight Israel. And as we go out to fight Israel, uh, I'm, I want you, David, and your men to go out with us to battle. Right? It's time to bring out the special forces. You guys have had such victory. You clearly know how to fight Israel. You could go out there and you're just going to help us destroy them once and for all. And so he makes this ask of, uh, of David. And David's like, well, you know what we can do. Uh, you know, he kind of has like this sort of response for him. Uh, but then as we come to the story, it kind of leaves us at like a, a little bit of a cliffhanger here. Because all of a sudden it's like, wait, I thought we were going to find out what happened. But then it's like, it goes, it, you know, like the next episode's not released yet. And we're like, what the heck? I thought we were going to like binge this whole thing. And they were like, nope, that's not what's going on here. Instead, the camera pans to a different story, a different episode. Why would it do this? Why would it do this? Because like clearly... Uh, I was ready for it just to like preload and come in and just be like previously in First Samuel chapter 27, right? Like I thought like that's what was going to happen. And we were going to get like the like 30 second recap and we click skip intro and then be like, look, let's go, right? Like I thought that this was going to happen. But clearly something, something's interrupting. And the reason for this interruption is because there's something that we are to discover. There's a contrast that's happening here between, again, David and Saul. Again, we are to see in the text, as important as David's situation was, where we're like, oh shoot, it's starting to get crazy for him. It's about to get really crazy for Saul. All of a sudden, we're told, and what we're meant to see here, is that Saul's situation takes greater precedence. It is way more important because of the coming narrative, but also because the way that Saul's heart has been developing over the course of the book. And so we're meant to see, as much as we think David's in some trouble, as much as we kind of feel like, oh, I don't know how he's going to get out of this one, right? I don't know how he's going to survive. I don't know how the Lord's going to be faithful to him. We're meant to see here in the text this morning that this passage is way more important. Important enough to interrupt this pattern of God's faithfulness in David's life that we could see the trajectory. We, we don't see that continuing for a bit. But what we do see is God's faithfulness in Saul's life. Not in a way that he would have liked, unfortunately, for him. But he is true to his character and true to his word. And so as we look at the text this morning, we find valuable lessons and valuable insight into how Saul ruled, how he worked in Israel. And then also we can kind of see a glimpse here of this contrast of how different David is. It's not, this text isn't so much about David. There's a lack actually of David in the text, but it's a lot about it giving us this lasting picture, this lasting memory of Saul before we head into David ascending to the throne. It's meant to give us this kind of last bitter taste of like, really, this is how it went, huh? Uh, we don't want to have these good memories necessarily of Saul, but we want to see David in contrast to this. And so this is a picture uh, to remind us a contrast of David for the future. But this morning, we look at the text as it applies to Saul and his situation and how, uh, you know, this gives us direction for how we ought to pursue Christ. And so we come to the text in verse 3, we read this. Now Samuel had died, 
And all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and necromancers out of the land. So this is the introduction that we have in verse 3. All of a sudden it comes, this is our kind of our, our transition from David running away and, uh, you know, being uh, someone who is fleeing to the Philistines, now to coming to uh, a description again, a reminder in verse 3 that Samuel had died. Now, Samuel had died previously back in chapter 25. So it's not saying like, okay, now Samuel died again. This isn't intended to be a uh, chronological verse here, right? It's intended to give us a reminder. Here's the context that we're coming into this passage. Samuel had died, uh, and this was this last person who had uh, stood between Israel and the king of Israel, who stood between Israel and the people of Israel, who was this mediator of sorts. And so uh, we find that as a result here, He's died, they've mourned for him, they've buried him in Ramah. This is a reflection of what we've just read in the previous chapters where, uh, you know, the city or the people of Israel, they are recognizing the blessing that he was to them. But then we find kind of this strange note. And Saul had put the mediums and necromancers out of the land. Kind of a little bit of a strange note here that exists. And uh, there's some... Because this particular verse isn't really like a very chronological verse per se, there's some, there's some argument about like what's going on here with Saul. Like did he do this like back in chapter 25 as a result of, of Samuel's death? He's like, oh, Samuel died. So like I've got to like, I got to get holy now and like I got to like, you know, make this turnaround. I got to get rid of, uh, you know, the mediums and the necromancers, these people who practice witchcraft. It's time to get rid of them. Or was this something that he had systematically done throughout uh, Samuel's life? It was one of the few things that perhaps he obeyed in. You know, as Samuel uh, brought his direction to Saul, he was like, look, you got to get rid of them. The, you know, we got to get rid of these people. And so over the course of Samuel's life that he eventually kind of drove all of them out of the land. We don't really have a clear understanding of like the exact time frame, but we do have a result like either way. He got rid of them all, right? This is one of the few things that we find where he had some sort of zeal for obeying uh, the scriptures. This is something that would have uh, been said that we have to get rid of all of these people who practice witchcraft. We've got to drive them out of the land. And the reason being is, of course, that these people are offering an alternative way or opportunity to find uh, direction in one's life. Instead of seeking the Lord, it's essentially a version of idolatry. It's, it's a way to build up someone else that you're serving, someone else that you're coming to. You're saying, I don't need God. I'm going to come and find what I need through another means, another channel. Right? And today, you kind of find this sort of thing practiced with people who are you know, uh, doing things like tarot cards and palm readers and uh, you know, astrology and people who are, you know, kind of practicing these sorts of, uh, you know, spiritual, uh, you know, channeling. And for some of them, uh, you know, it might just be a sort of a sham sort of thing where they're just kind of like making stuff up and tricking people. But these things also do open up a real opportunity for uh, the demonic realm to be involved. We're told in the scriptures that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age. It, the scripture explicitly tells us that there are there is a, a demonic activity that exists, and so we should not be surprised that this is what it's highlighting. That this is a channel uh, that the enemy would try to use to distract us. He would try to use things that you know we would maybe from a, a, a Christian perspective, might say are blatantly evil. But then he also is described in the scriptures as, you know, uh, appearing as an angel of light, things looking really nice. Not like this, uh, you know, the, the kind of stereotypical, you know, red suit with the pitchfork and the, the horns. Like, that's, that's not really like, you know, the MO. Like, this is probably uh, the way that the enemy mostly works in our life is by pre presenting to us the most appealing things, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. These things are, we're likely to overlook. That can't possibly be bad. It looks great. 
But we have to take these things seriously. We have to remember these things, especially in our modern day, these uh, participating in these avenues and areas of witchcraft, it's not just something you can be like, okay, well, it's, you know, we're just having like a little fun. It's not really real. When you play with those things, you open yourself up to participate in uh, the demonic realm and really to, to uh, you know, say, I'm going to find another channel for spirituality. And so Saul does his one good thing that he does here, it seems like in the text. He gets rid of all the people who are uh, practicing this witchcraft. And then as we come to verse 4, the reality of life sets in on him. The situation approaches. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. Now, <clears throat> great, cool geography lesson, right? To us, we're like, whatever. Great, two armies, you're on a map. This is how things go. But something different is happening here, and it's something different enough to just totally uh, get in Saul's head, right? He starts to lose it here shortly because most of the battles that Israel fought with the Philistines took place in the southern portion of the country. And most of the battles that, took, that they had with the Philistines took place in kind of more hilly or mountainous regions, right? We have the recording of, of uh, the Philistines kind of... Um, in a particular area where they're kind of in this rock outcropping and, and Jonathan and his men kind of make their way up to this kind of mountainous region to see where they're at. And they're, they're always kind of nestled in against caves and rocks and uh, this, these kind of hilly regions, right? We're not talking like this isn't, we're not saying like this is like the Rocky Mountains here, but like this isn't necessarily like flat area, Right? And so most of the battles were fought in the southern portion of the country. Most of them were shot in a little or were fought in a, in a hilly sort of region. Uh, but here they changed their strategy and they gather further north, way further north than they usually do. And what's happening here is that the Philistine strategy changed. They are trying explicitly to cut Israel in half. They're trying to divide it right down the middle so that way the northern tribes of Israel would be cut off from the southern tribes and that Saul wouldn't have access to them. Additionally, this would allow them to control the trade routes that went back and forth between those. And so they would give themselves a bit of uh, leverage there in, in terms of regulating that trade or perhaps uh, you know, conquering the people but allowing, like receiving tribute as a result of their victory. But more than that, what they're doing here is an even bigger problem for Israel. Because where they are is in a valley region. It's flat ground. It's a level playing field. Which is not really ideal for Israel. Because the Philistines had chariots. And Israel does not. Right? So a tremendous advantage. They're going to be facing people with greater mobility, greater speed. Like, this is not looking good for Israel. And so, uh, usually, they fought these battles in the hills, but now this is what they're up against. They gather here, verse 5, when Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim, or by prophets. So as the Philistines gather on the opposite side, <clears throat> Saul's heart just begins to lose it, right? He's just, he's developing anxiety. We're told he was afraid. His heart trembled greatly. And as he's there, he's asking the same thing, right? This is not the, the, the last time that he faced uh, the Philistines in a valley. The last time that he faced the Philistines in a valley, there was a long standoff and the Philistines had a champion, Goliath. And it was a standoff for a good number of days until finally little David came forth to fight the Lord's battle, to meet the champion of the Philistines in the middle of the valley and to go to war in single combat. Saul doesn't have David now. 
And more than that, he also doesn't have the Lord. Right? This is what he says. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. He went in the three usual ways, kind of the, you know, what we might say is the, the lesser spiritual ways. Like he just like was like, maybe the Lord will speak to me in a dream. That didn't happen. Then he went by Urim, which is kind of this practice of, uh, that we've des- described in the past where you would, it would be involved with uh, the, the priest at the time who would have these uh, kind of two stones that would be in the, the ephod and that they would, you would come to the priest and ask him kind of these yes or no questions-ish. And it, this is how most scholars believe this operated. And you would ask the Lord, like, should we do this? And he would reach in and pull out and one kind of meant like a yes and one kind of meant like a no. Um, uh, and so like there was this thought and the Lord didn't really give an answer to him in this, in this fashion. Uh, and then also we're told that he is not given direction by prophets either as he asks other people to get insight, to get wisdom, to get understanding about how he should proceed he, again, does not receive direction. Again, he's in a valley. Again, he's with against the Philistines. But this time, he doesn't have David, and he doesn't have the Lord. The Lord did not answer him. What in the world are we to do with that, right? Like, why didn't God answer him? What's going on? He's like here, and he's like, hey, like, I got this problem. Why is the Lord not answering him? What is the Lord trying to do in Saul's heart? What has the Lord always been trying to do in Saul's heart? To get him to repent. And if you recall, the Lord said that if you obey me, there will be blessings. But if you disobey me, there will be curses. And as a result, those things are designed to remind you that you are under discipline and to bring you back into relationship with me. So the Lord's silence here was not one to say, I don't want to help you in any way, but rather his silence was exactly the help that he needed at that time. To be reminded, Saul, you're under discipline. You need to repent, not how to figure out how to fight this battle. Like the biggest problem in your life is not how you're going to deal with this situation, but what's going on in your own heart. This is the biggest problem that you're facing. It's not the external. It's not the circumstance. It's not how are we going to navigate these people? How am I going to talk to the the troops? How am I going to inspire them? Your heart is your biggest problem. And if he would have thought about it for a second, he would have known all that he needed to know. That he needed to be repentant. He was cut off. He was under the Lord's curse. If this had been a real, a real inquiry with the Lord, if he would have come with this real honesty, he would have felt that desertion from the Lord, like the Lord has left me. Just like David said in the, in, that we looked at last week in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you turn your face away from me? How long will this be? He cries out these three times. He continues to say, consider and remember me. Consider me, remember me, return. And then he says, I remember, I've trusted in the Lord's faithfulness. David went through the steps that Saul needed to go through that we looked at last week in Psalm 13. Saul refuses to go this path. He doesn't really inquire of the Lord in the sense that he's seeking direction from the Lord that he is going to be willing to obey and to be guided by. He's seeking the Lord to get the desired outcome that he wants. He's using God as a means to an end. Hey, God, I got this problem. I want you to solve my problem. Not, God, I'm here to be yours and to do whatever you want me to do. To follow you in whatever way you ask me to go. God, I've got a problem. You need to solve it. You see, the Lord, the Lord doesn't let us use him. He doesn't let us manipulate him. In that way, he will not allow himself to be used as a means to an end. He's not going to let you say, Here's all my problems, you better solve them. 
Because his solve is a deeper, a deeper thing than you realize. His solve is like you're asking the wrong problem. You're asking the wrong questions. His solve is going around all the things that you want to what you need. You see, Saul gets himself into trouble again because he had to know what the future held. He's like, look, I'm here. This is my opportunity. There's a, there's a valley. Like, I'm going to have to encounter this at some point in my life. I'm going to have to, like, I can't get into another eternal standoff like we did with David. I don't have David now. What do I do? How do I fight this battle? He has to know what's going to happen if we go out to war. He's looking for that safety. He's looking for that security. He's looking for that promise of what the future holds. He wants to ensure that he will be secure. What was going to happen when he goes out to battle? If he couldn't have this information from God, he's going to have to get it somewhere. Look at verse 7. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I might go, might go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So here's what happens. Saul drives all of the mediums and necromancers out of the land. They don't exist anymore. He's trying to use the Lord to get what he wants, to get the safety and security, to find his own path, to make sure that he's going to know what's going to happen so he can change his plan. He can adjust to make sure that he's going to overcome whatever is said to happen. He's going to try to manipulate things to go his own way. And the Lord doesn't speak to him, and so he's like, well, i got to get the information somewhere. He's not content to recognize that the Lord is in charge, that he needs to repent. He's like, okay, well, i got to go find it somewhere. And so he goes now to the very people that he drove out of the land. And he sends this group of people, or he sends his servants to go and find this person. Right. So now he's looping other people into his sin, even more so. And now he's going to look for this person who might be able to consult the dead for him. Huge and obvious sin. Explicitly stated in Leviticus 19, 20, Deuteronomy 18, Leviticus 19. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out, right? Not just don't, don't turn to them. Don't even seek them out, right? And so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. He's saying there, by joining yourself to someone else who you're seeking their, their insight, their direction, their knowledge, you're, you're making yourself unclean. You're coming into contact with, uh, with them. You need, he is your God. He, he, he just says, don't do it. I'm your God. I'm in relationship with you. I'm the one you seek. Just a few verses, uh, or a, a, a book later in Deuteronomy 18 Verse 10, he says, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Like he just gives like this huge drunk drawer list of like all the things that you might want to loophole out and be like, well, I'm not a medium technically. Like I'm actually, it's like, you can't really get around this, right? He's, he's got you covered. He says, the issue is, is that you're going around me. I am the Lord, your God. You don't go and find information. You don't go and seek direction somewhere else. No one else is going to give you wisdom, discernment, advice, direction for the future. I am the Lord your God. But now it's a sign of his disobedience. It's a sign of his hard-heartedness that he's consulting a medium. Now, it gets worse than that. Because not only is he consulting a medium, it's a medium that's in indoor which is like, okay, great. What the heck does that mean? He had to pass by the Philistine army that set up. Like he had to go out of his way to the northern part to go like basically like next door to them, like pretty close. 
like, where they could potentially discover them. He had to travel out of the way into an area that they were occupying to meet with somebody there. It's not like they were just like, okay, well, it's like you're kind of in a relatively safe area, right? He had to go again into enemy territory to go and find this medium. Verse 8, so Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with them. And they came to the woman by night, and he said, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Okay, so now it just gets like super ridiculous because Saul gets himself in trouble. One, he puts on this disguise. He doesn't want anyone to know that it's him, right? Okay, number one, disguising yourself. He goes with these two other people. They go to this woman, right, by night, under the cover of night, in darkness, they're making their way not in the light of the day, not when things are illuminated and thing, there's clarity, but when things are hidden. He goes to this woman and he says, divine for me by a spirit, right? So he's not calling on the Lord. He's saying, however you do your thing, however you work with like these demons, the demons that you're familiar with, that you're going to commune with to find out this information. I want you to give me this information, is what he's getting at. Now, she comes back and she says, Well, you know what Saul has done. Like, we're not supposed to do this, blah, blah, blah. Right? She's not saying here, like, Oh, I'm like this repentant person and you're like really forcing me to do this. She's basically being like, Yo, is this like a trap? Like, are you trying to like trick me here? Like, that's what's happening here. She's fine with continuing this. Right? There's not some big issue here. She just wants to know, Is this a trap? Which she says, why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? So here's the, here's the situation. <clears throat> Saul pursues an alternative direction. Insight. Idolatry. In the cover of night. Even as he went to this place to find this person, remember, it's not just that it got done, it's that it was sought out. Remember? It actually gets worse than that. Leviticus is a little bit more descriptive in chapter 20, verse 6. If a person turns to mediums and necromancers, whoring after them, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off from among his people. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Right? So as Saul journeyed to find this person, it was already a done deal. It was already a done deal. It wasn't like, well, like, let's see how, how it happens, how he gets there. He said, like, the Lord says, like, if you go to this person, like, I'm just going to cut you off. If you turn to mediums and necromancers, I will set my face against that person and will cut him off among his people. And then by contrast, he says, therefore, consecrate yourselves. Set yourselves apart. Make sure that there is no opportunity for you to do such a thing. To seek alternative direction. To go your own way. Do not be cut off. He says, you should make a line. Cut yourself off from them before I cut you off. Saul makes his way. She wonders if this is a trap. And then for some reason, Saul tries to swear this oath to her in verse 10. He swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Like, I mean, this really just highlights how far he's drifted, right? Because he tries to promise her protection in the name of the Lord, who specifically has condemned this person 
and their practices. It's like, makes no sense. He's trying to offer support from God to this person when God does not support them and has already brought condemnation upon this person. He's so far gone. He's drifted so far, he's gone his own way. But nevertheless, she agrees. Look at verse 11. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Now it's just a hot mess, right? Like this is just getting crazy. It's like, let's do this. Okay, she does it. All of a sudden, he's like, yo, bring up Samuel for me. As soon as she sees Samuel, then she cries out with a loud voice. Now, what in the world is happening here? Uh, some commentators are like a little bit like in disagreement about what's happening here. It's not, it's not too bad either way, but some people feel that there's like this evil spirit that impersonated Samuel. That was like, uh, came out and was like, hey, like, you know, the, the demon that she would have uh, normally been in communication with would have like been like, oh, like I'm Samuel or whatever, right? Terrible impersonation of Samuel. But I think what really happened here is that she was calling upon her regular demonic activity that she has uh, surrendered her life to. She had this relationship that she had developed with uh, whatever supernatural and demonic activity that existed here. And as she called upon, uh, you know, these forces, all of a sudden Samuel really showed up. And she was like, what in the heck is going on? Like, this is not the normal thing that happens. Right? Because what happens here is that she's startled by his sudden appearance. She's like, what in the heck? She shrieks, we're told. She cries out with this loud voice. She's used to dealing with a familiar demon. But instead, she's like, what in the heck? This is not the person that I'm normally talking to. Like, what in the heck is going on here? The text also says, like, it was Samuel. It doesn't say, like, it was a spirit impersonating Samuel. It says, like, this was Samuel. So, like, we're just going to go with it and say it was Samuel. But then, as we look at what the context is of what Samuel says, like, it's in keeping with truth, what actually happens. So, I think we can pretty much say here that this is Samuel. Like, it's not the spirit impersonating Samuel. So, how do we explain it? Like, what the heck is the deal here? How does this woman call up Samuel? Well, I don't think she does. I think she thinks she's calling upon uh, this evil spirit. And for this particular moment, God interrupts this evil ceremony unexpectedly by allowing the real Samuel to appear. This happens by the power and permission of God. It happens to make whatever reasons God has permits Samuel to come up to speak his words of truth and condemnation. Because we find that what is said is true even if it comes through an absolutely like illegitimate method. This is not a prescription of what you should do, but rather a description of what has happened in order for us to have this shocking interchange, this shocking contrast with Saul and David. The shocking contrast of, uh, of what it is to seek the Lord and to see someone who is faking it, to see someone who has gone so far that they're going through the motions, that they're making their own way. As Samuel is here, 
We read in verse 15, Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me. And God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what to do. So Saul comes and he's like, look, I am hopeless. I don't have any other recourse. I am in great distress. He, he summarizes his situation. I'm in great distress. I'm in war against the Philistines. God's not answering me. The prophets don't have anything to say. I'm not getting a word in dreams. He is abandoned. He's miserable. You see, this was what was said by Samuel all along, like way, 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 way back. Samuel tried to warn him, like, this is what's going to happen to you. And now Saul, in his own words, confirms the truth of what was said about him. Like, you, you're going to just go your own way. You're going to be forsaken by God. Your kingdom's going to be given to another. And he has this last kind of cry of despair to Samuel. I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. Now, a little bit ironic here, because during his entire lifetime, Samuel tried to tell Saul what to do, and he didn't want to listen for his entire life. But now that he's dead, he's like, well, I'm really looking for your advice now. Like, what? Maybe you should have listened a while ago, Saul. Right? Maybe you should have heard what was being said. But Samuel only had bad news. Look at verse 16. Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow your sons, you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines." So he comes to get insight, he comes to get this safety and security, and he only receives a word of condemnation. He only receives a word of discouragement. Do you really think that Samuel, who was, was going to be able to help him when God remained silent, Samuel serves the Lord. You think Samuel's all of a sudden going to have this special thing to say that the Lord didn't want to say to him? But instead, he confirms exactly what Saul was hoping to avoid. This outcome that the kingdom would be taken from him, that would be given to David. This has been said multiple times. The next day, the Philistines would defeat Israel. Saul and his sons would join Samuel in death, that they would be killed. Upon hearing this, Verse 20, then Saul fell at once at full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat this or, and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fatted calf in the house, and she quickly killed it and took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. Saul gets the bad news, just totally knocks him over. He is crushed, absolutely destroyed at what he's heard. He realizes that here's what's coming. Would he have the ability to overcome this? 
Is his plan going to work? Is he going to counter the Lord's plan with his own way? Is he going to get a different outcome now that he knows the future? I don't think so. And I think finally he's realizing this. He's not eaten. He's not prepared to make this journey back. And this woman's like, look, like you got to get out of here. Like, I, I, you cannot stay here. So like, let's get you some food. Right? And they kind of give us this like, little like, side note. Like, she's like, let me give you a little morsel of bread, which is kind of like this. But then all of a sudden, she's like killing a fatted calf. Right? Like, what in the heck is happening here? This is kind of like a typical, like, uh, ancient Middle Eastern, like, underwhelming statement. You know, it's like, oh, I'm going to make you a morsel of bread, but, like, meanwhile, prepare you, like, this massive meal. Right? It's like, there's four of them. Like, you're going to go out and kill this fatted calf, and, like, it's like, like, and it's not quick either. Like, it's just crazy. But she says, we're in this together. I took my life in my own hands and I obeyed you. Now you obey me. Now the king is taking orders from this uh, medium. She's like, look, you should listen to me. I'm going to handle it. But eventually gave in. And the woman provides a meal that is extremely generous and would have been, you know, something that perhaps you would have given to King Saul. You don't just give the king like a little tiny piece of bread and you're like, okay, great, here you go. Peace. Get out of here. She like prepares something that is meeting the moment. But the irony of it all is she's kind of at the same time trying to make someone comfortable before they face total disaster. Like it's about to be, like this is the end. He's trying to get him to feel a little bit better about himself. Let's get you some sustenance. Let's take care of you. This is not taking care of him, right? It's a facade. They partake of the meal. Then, we're told, they rose... This is the last thing we hear. Then they rose and went away that night. They eat, they go out at night. They come in the night, they leave at night. They come in disguise. It's revealed what's really happening. It's revealed what will happen not in the way that Saul desired. But it was through the Lord bringing his revelation of what will happen, something that Saul could not change. As they eat this last meal, this last supper, and go out into the night, it's very similar to another individual, someone who had some challenges and yet was one who preached Christ, did miracles in his name. In John 13, 30, we read, after Judas received a morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. There it is again. In the Gospel of John, we find that he uses this similar terminology, this similar language, all throughout the book, indicating whether it was day or whether it was night. And here, he's not intending for us to say, like, okay, well, you know, uh, he's not trying to keep track of the, the time for us so that we can put together an accurate chronological timeline of, like, what time did he actually leave the, uh, the Last Supper? We're intended to see here that his actions are connected to darkness. He eats this last bit of morsel of bread. He takes it and he goes off into the darkness to commit his treasonous acts, to come against Jesus. 
to oppose him. But I think as they were there at that Last Supper, as Jesus is sitting with his disciples, as he's explaining to them what's going to happen, as he communicates to his closest friends and followers, as he shares with them of his own life, of his of himself, a meal that he had shared with them many times before. As he came around the table to Judas, he sent him out, and off Judas went into the darkness. But there were some who remained at the table, weren't there? His followers. They were there still. But Jesus knew that they, like us, one by one, would be a people who were fashioned after Saul's heart, after Judas's heart. That one by one, we would systematically become people who go out into the darkness. You say, I'm not getting what I want from you, Jesus. You're not providing for me what my expectations are. He knew that that's where it would end. Even though Judas was the first one to get up and get out of there, even though it was foretold that he would do so, Jesus knew that eventually we would all fail. It only takes a couple of hours for, for Peter to get there, right? All of a sudden, he's out saying, like, oh, I have zero idea who Jesus is. Like, I don't trust that guy at all. Like, he's cursing Jesus. Pretty soon, someone who's kind of on the outskirts, Judas, leaves. And someone who's in Jesus' inner circle, the closest of the close, right? He's in there. And that top three. And even he scatters. Even he heads out into the darkness. And so as Judas went out, I'm sure Jesus looked around the table and said, You guys are going to head out into the darkness. It's going to happen. The only way to reclaim it is if I head out into the darkness for you. Right? As we come to the text of Jesus' death, this is exactly what we see. He heads not out, he not only heads out into this uh, physical darkness of the arena. In Mark 15, 33, we're told as the sixth hour comes, right, which is basically the middle of the day. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. From noon until 3 p.m., basically. Darkness over the entire land. At the brightest part of the day, all of a sudden the darkness has arrived. And it's in conjunction with that darkness that Jesus then cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's heading out into now the spiritual darkness that we would also be heading out into. That we would be on our way to experience that separation from God. That our sin, we would be paying for that. But instead, through his work, he pays for our sin so that we might not have to experience that darkness. Right? That's the truth of the gospel. It's the glory of the gospel that Jesus went out into the darkness for us so that we would not have to experience that darkness. We would not have to experience the, the, uh, the God's absence, his, that he has forsaken us. At Jesus' Last Supper, they have that same piece of bread, right? The unleavened bread that this woman gives to Saul. He has his unleavened bread. He explains it's his body that would be broken. But there's no calf. There's only something better, a pure and spotless lamb. And his blood would be shed so that we do not have to head out into the darkness. He walks out into the darkness in order that we might walk in the light of life. And 
And so we have to ask that question, like, are we seeking Jesus who has endured that darkness for us? Who has made a way for us to walk in his wonderful light? We want to pursue him. We want to walk with him in that light. This is how John puts it in his first epistle. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. Here it is. He's like, I got the message. We are sharing it. Here's what you need to know. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. He's like saying, don't be like Saul. Don't go in disguise. Don't go under the cover of night. He says, verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We can see one another. We're close to one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's what happens in the light. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is what happens in the light. That doesn't happen in the darkness. Only deception. Only lies happen in the darkness. We've got to pursue the one who has endured the darkness for us. Jesus is the only one who's done it. The only one who's endured. The only one in whom we can find light and life. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your kindness, for your generosity, for your love towards us. And that while we were a people who were once in darkness... Lord, you have redeemed us through your work at the cross. You've transferred us into your kingdom. One in which we find true life. And we wait for that day where we will see you face to face, where we will come into your presence and where we're told in your word that there there is no sun because you are the light and you give life to the city and that you illuminate everything and it's there in your presence where we will have fullness of joy we wait for that day until then lord we ask that you would satisfy us so deeply with yourself Lord, we want to pursue you wholeheartedly. And so, Lord, we we ask that you would work in us. You would help us by your Holy Spirit to discover those areas that are keeping us from knowing you and from following you. We want to give them over to you, for you are a good and loving king. We want you to rule and reign over them and have your way. And so, Lord, we surrender to you this morning. We love you. Amen.